Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, good morning. Are you glad to be here today? All right, a couple of people, turn to your neighbor and just say, I'm glad you're here and it's going to be a good day. All right, four people said it. Over here on this side, you're all losers. All right, grab your Bibles. Mark chapter 14, let's get after it. Uh, you're turning there. It's, it's not a surprise to those of you who are regular attenders here. Uh, I'm kind of a movie guy. I'm a story guy. Uh, I love going to the movies. I love seeing stories on the, in the theater. I just uh, I think it's a great thing. Uh, but what I've learned about myself in regards to movies or stories, whether it's a, it's, it's a, it's a uh, a production in a theater or whether it's a movie on a screen is I, I love getting into not just the storyline or the plot, but the character development. Um, and so I've, I've kind of found myself connecting with certain types of movies, different varieties of movies, but movies that have great character development where you're seeing kind of within the story, different characters emerging where you're learning more about their story. Because what you, what you find is, is as you see the characters develop, you can relate to them. You can connect with them emotionally or maybe uh, the circumstances of their life you can identify uh, with. In fact, there was a movie released uh, about a little over about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now. Uh, called The Greatest Showman. Anybody see The Greatest Showman? Raise your hand if you saw The Greatest Showman. Yes, yeah, some of you, some of you guys won't admit it because it's a musical. But like the justification is, is that Wolverine plays the, the main guy, so you can watch it. Um, but I love this movie, and the reason I think so many people love the movie is because within the story, there's a lot of stories taking place. So the character development is amazing in there. So some some people will watch this movie and they identify with maybe the the spectacles of the circus because you, you maybe in your life you feel like, man, I just don't know where I fit in. And so you can kind of relate to that part of the story. Others of you, there's a character uh, played by a guy, a guy named, I think, Zach Efron, Efron, whatever you say his name. But is it the guy, what was it again? I'm so sorry, ladies. Forgive me. Um, uh, his, he played a character called Philip Carlyle. Uh, and so Philip Carlyle, his character is a guy who there's got all these expectations uh, because he comes from money, but wants to kind of break out of those expectations. And a lot of people relate to him. And then you got the P.T. Barnum uh, Wolverine character. And uh, you see, he is a man who just wants to accomplish something significant so that he can feel some self-value and worth. And all of the music in the movie kind of helps build the, the character development within the story. Where some of you, you're like, you've lost me at The Greatest Showman and the character development. So let me give you a movie that maybe you can relate to the characters, Dumb and Dumber. All right, so that may be your movie. Uh, but what I love about the series we're in, this Passion Week, is that we're, we're walking with Jesus in his final week before uh, he goes to the cross and is resurrected. And we're, we're just kind of seeing this journey to the cross, seeing this journey to where he is going to die for our sins and be resurrected for our salvation. But what I love about it is, is not only are we looking at some of the individual moments of Jesus' life within the story, but we're also kind of learning more about the characters within the story. You're seeing some character development. And this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14, 
where we're going to find Jesus in this place called the upper room, and he is going to be spending this, this last Passover meal with his disciples, a significant moment between he and, and, and the disciples as he institutes what we know now as the Lord's Supper. And uh, as we're reading this story, I was just this week I was thinking, uh, man, I want to I want to I, I preach this message or the, this passage so many times. I want to see it with fresh eyes. And, and early this week, man, the Lord just kind of put my eyes and my heart on three main characters within the story that I want to kind of focus in on and see the, the character development and really learn some things from these characters in this significant moment in the life of Jesus. And uh, as we look at these characters, I want you to be thinking to yourself, asking your, yourself the question, which character do I identify with the most? Which character can I relate to the most within these three uh, characters? So if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Start reading in verse uh, 17. It says, when it was evening, he came, this is Jesus, with the twelve. And as they were reclining at a table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, uh, uh, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. In other words, it's one of the twelve, so it's, it's, now I'm going to narrow it down, and it's, it's all of you guys that are at, at the table. It's one of you who are sitting here with me eating and sharing this meal. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, Listen to this, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. This is a heavy moment in the story. You're gonna, you're gonna, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter, but I'm going to be raised. Disciples have no clue what he's talking about here. And then he says this, verse number 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, this week I laughed in my study as I've read this because the first time I preached this passage of Scripture, I was a college student. This is 1998 or so. And uh, as a college student, I had organized a group of my buddies to go to... Uh, uh, New Orleans for a mission trip. I had served at a church there in, in, in a summer, and I was going back, and we were going to do some mission work with the church. And so I was so passionate. I preached this passage of Scripture about Peter's denial, and, and I got to that crescendo moment where Jesus says, hey, you're going to all deny me, or you're going to be scattered. And Peter's like, not me. It's not going to be me. And, and Jesus kind of hones in this climactic moment and says, no, Peter, before the rooster crows, uh, you, you will deny me three times. And so I wanted to get my point across, and so I raised my voice, and with all of the, 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 the energy within me, I said, and Jesus looked at Peter, and I paraphrased, before the chicken crows three times, you're going to deny me. And all of my friends just fell out because, you know, they say, well, I don't know what kind of chickens you have in Arkansas, but in Texas, the roosters actually crow, all right? So I said it right this time. 
Well, in this story, this is a significant moment. Jesus is in the upper room. This is called the upper room discourse. And this is a lengthy time that Jesus was spending with his disciples and a significant time. This was the last meal, the last supper he is going to have with his disciples, the last Passover meal he's going to celebrate with them before his crucifixion. In fact, John records for us the, the, the entirety of what took place within that room. It's a very lengthy, a lot longer than what we read. This is the place where Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet, and then he gives them this lengthy teaching about what it means to abide in him and, and what's going to come when he is taken away from them and what life is going to be like. There's this lengthy discourse, and then they, they, they share what's called the Passover meal together where Jesus takes this meal and he, he, he explains to them what it really means. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. And then Jesus is going to leave. He's going to go to the Mount of Olives where he is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. And ultimately, he's going to be tried and crucified. So this is a very significant moment. This is the last sit-down moment between Jesus and his disciples uh, before he's going to be uh, betrayed. And within this story, there are three characters that really emerged that have really stirred my heart this week that I want us to hone in on just for a few moments. We see the first one emerge in verse 17. Look what Jesus says. It says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, listen to this, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? Now, we, we know the story. We know what disciple is going to betray Jesus? Don't we say, say his name? Who's it going to be? It's going to be Judas. We know that. But I want you to notice that in the story, Jesus knows it. We know it, but the disciples don't know it. The disciples are, are, are puzzled. Jesus says, hey, one of you are going to betray me. And the disciples are looking first. They don't say, oh, look at Judas. I think it's maybe him. No, no, no one even suspects that it's Judas. Judas is not even on the radar. Like, like Judas is that character, like that when we read the story, every time he shows up, we know where it's going, right? Because we've read the story, and there's this dun-dun-dun moment where we know this is the bad guy, this is the antagonist, we know who he is. But within the 12, no one suspected Judas to be the guy. One by one, they begin to say, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Jesus can't be me. Is it me? Are you, like, I need to, they, they first started looking at themselves. And so they, they didn't suspect Judas was not even in, on the radar. Now, we, we know it because of what Mark has written to us earlier. Look at verse 10. It tells us right before they go into the upper room, this is what, what Judas had going on. It says, then Judas Iscariot, now listen to this. This next phrase is important. We'll unpack it in a moment. Who was one of the twelve went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. So the chief priests, they've been out to get Jesus. They're trying to take Jesus down. They're trying to find cause, justification to put him to death. And so they've been scheming and looking and waiting. Judas knows this. And so Judas willfully goes to these men and, and, and offers Jesus to them. And they were excited about this. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they, they promised to give him money. And then listen to this. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him to betray Jesus. Now, I want you to, to hear the phrase that is said here about Judas and, and why the disciples don't suspect that it's Judas. Now, think about how impetuous Peter is. If Peter had any inclination, and you know the story, Peter's the guy cutting people's ears off, and we'll talk about Peter in just a moment. There is no way Judas is getting out of that room alive if Peter has even the slightest idea that it's Judas. And notice in verse 10 and 11, it identifies Judas as one of the 12. You say, what does that mean? That Judas is one of the followers. 
At this particular moment in Jesus' life, this is the end of his ministry. The crowds have, have, have swelled. There are a number of people attracted to Jesus. He's doing all of these miracles. He's attracting spectators, those who are kind of wanting to look in and check out, and they're curious about Jesus. But that's not who Judas is. Judas is in the inner circle. Judas is one of the disciples. He's one of the 12. Man, he, he, he left everything to follow Jesus. He wasn't just someone on the peripheral. He wasn't just a curiosity seeker. He wasn't just a man enamored with the celebrity of Jesus. This was a guy who was specifically chosen by Jesus and who willfully left everything to follow Jesus. This guy was in the inner circle. And this is important that we understand this because this brings us to our first observations. The first truth we learn about this character is this, is that from Judas, here's what we see. We see that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, Judas had every advantage, did he not? I mean, just think about Judas's life. Judas is one of the original disciples. He had a front row seat to all of the life and ministry. He walked where Jesus walked. He slept where Jesus slept. He ate where Jesus ate. He, he was on the front row of every sermon. The greatest preacher on the planet has ever preached. The greatest disciple. Judas was discipled by Jesus himself. Judas was there in the crowd that day when Jesus multiplied the, 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 the fish and the loaves. In fact, he was one of the men carrying the baskets around, un amazed at the miracle that Jesus had performed. He was in the boat when Jesus walked along the water. He was outside the tomb with Lazarus when, when the stone was rolled away and Lazarus was raised from the dead. He, he was there at the exorcisms as Jesus cast out demons. Imagine being there for that. What is the point? The point is this is a guy that lived in close proximity to Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus personally. And what we learn from his life is that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving relationship with Jesus. That Judas, listen, Judas had proximity to Jesus, but he had never been transformed by Jesus. One of my greatest fears for us in this room is this, is that there will be those of you in the room that would come in week in and week out. You would listen to preaching and teaching. You would serve on mission. You would volunteer. You would maybe even lead a life group. You would serve the church in some capacity, and you would spend your life in proximity to Jesus but have never experienced a saving relationship with Jesus. It's that you would, you would live a life where you witness firsthand the greatness and the majesty and the glory of Jesus, that you would live, even those around you might even look and say, hey, listen, I know her, I know him. Man, I know, I've watched their life. They're there every single week. They're in the fight with us, never realizing that you are a person who's living in proximity, but have never been transformed by the gospel that you profess to believe in. This is a scary reality. And there are some of you in the room that that, that is the character that you identify with the most. You say, how, how does this happen? Well, like, how, do, how does this take place? This guy who, who you think is the guy, and how does, he, how does he do this and betray Jesus like this? There's really a couple of reasons that we, we believe maybe that Judas betrayed Jesus like this. Two main options, and I'll just give you both of them. Scholars debate which one it is. I think it's a combination of both. The first option, the reason we feel like that maybe Judas betrayed Jesus and abandoned him is this, is that Jesus, listen, he didn't pursue Jesus. Judas didn't pursue Jesus for who he was. This is option number one. But for who he wanted Jesus to be. 
That Judas did not pursue Jesus for who he was, but rather who he wanted Jesus to be. Some say that Judas being a man who was a zealot, a zealot was a, a, a part or a sect of Judaism or, 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 or the, the, the Jewish religious system that said, you know, listen, we think the Messiah is coming and the Messiah is going to come by force. And so we believe that we should take back by force what has been taken from God's people. And so we, they're longing for and looking for the Messiah to come. And, and, and Judas was a part of that sect that says, listen, uh, the kingdom of God is going to come and it's going to be an earthly kingdom. He's going to kick Rome out of power. We're going to set up an earthly kingdom. And once again, the Messiah is going to rule and reign. And Judas sees the ministry of Jesus. He, he sees the life of Jesus and says, this is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Maybe Judas sees some of the early days of the miracles and he hears the messages and he connects the dots with the prophets and says, this has got to be the one. This has got to be the Messiah we've been waiting for. And so all these years, Judas is kind of tolerating Jesus being a servant, Jesus doing these things, waiting for that moment when Jesus would walk in Jerusalem, kick Rome out of power, set up his earthly uh, kingdom, and Judas there with the disciples would rule and reign with Jesus. And think about this, the Passion Week. This final week that they're in, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. What is he on? He's on the colt of a donkey. This is a messianic prophecy. And so Jesus rides in, and, and for the first time, Jesus receives public worship. He's, he's, he's coming into town, and the disciples are there. Think about what Judas might have felt as he's watching the people say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is being escorted Passover week into Jerusalem. Judas is thinking to himself, now's the time. He's going to come in, he's going to wreck shop, and he's going to do the things that I wanted him to do. He follows Jesus to the temple thinking, today's the day, today's the day. He's going to go to the temple and he's going to reveal who he is. And now he's going to do the thing that I've wanted him to do all of these years. He goes to the temple and he teaches and there's a little conflict that takes place. And then Jesus leaves. Judas is disappointed. And the next day, what does Jesus do? He goes over. And last week, Pastor Michael preached this passage where Jesus goes in and he starts turning over tables. He's filled with righteous anger. And Judas is probably thinking to himself, now's the time. He's going to do it. This is a power play. He's going to establish the kingdom. And then rather than establishing the kingdom, Jesus just infuriates the religious leaders to the point of which now they want to kill him. Jesus leaves. And rather than talking about the next power play, he starts talking about a cross and a tomb. Judas has all these expectations of who he wants Jesus to be. And in this moment, he recognizes this is, this is the Jesus that I got, but it's not the Jesus that I want. There were these expectations of who he wanted Jesus to be, and he quickly learned, this is not the Messiah that I thought he was. And so he looks for an opportunity just to get something out of the deal and move on with his life. There are some of you in the room, that is how you follow Jesus. You follow Jesus for who you want him to be, not necessarily for who he is. You want a Jesus who's going to come in and just make your marriage perfect. You want a Jesus who's going to come in and fix all the financial problems. You want a Jesus who's going to come in and just kind of give you this, this life of ease where you can just say, listen, I've got everything that I've ever needed in life. You've got the bad diagnosis, and, and now you're, you're kind of freaking out, and you're like, man, I need to pursue Jesus because I want Jesus to come in and fix this thing. So you're pursuing Jesus not for who he is, but rather for what you want him to do in your life. You see, what Judas, maybe Judas's problem is, is that he was trying to conform Jesus to his own making rather than letting Jesus 
rearrange his life. Far too many people in churches today are pursuing Jesus because they think he's the quick fix to their life's problems. And when Jesus doesn't come through like they think he's going to come through, they bail. They get caught up in the hype. And when he doesn't come through, they're out. How many of you have watched a movie and you, you're watching the movie and you think the movie's heading one direction? And it's like you're, everything is going. You're like, I know how this movie's going down. And you're following it. And you're like, this is the greatest movie ever. And then, then all of a sudden the plot changes and takes a hard left turn. And you're like, I didn't see that coming. Now you're angry at the writers and you just turn the movie off. Anybody ever done that? You just kind of get frustrated halfway through? Yes. This is what Judas is doing here. It's not going the way I thought it was going to go. I'm out. He's not doing what I wanted him to do. I'm out. He's not fixing the problems I want him to fix. I'm out. I don't care who he is. I know who I want him to be. And if he's not that, I'm out. For, for some of you in the room, this is, this, is, this is your story. There's the Jesus that is and there's a Jesus that you want him to be. And he's not always the same person. And when this happens in our life, we, we bail. There's a second reason. This is a little more simple. And I think this is probably primary for Judas. And it's this, is that Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus. He abandons Jesus simply because he loved money more than the Messiah. He loved money more than the Messiah. There's a story in John chapter 12 that includes some details that's important about the character of Judas. Uh, in John chapter 12, there's this woman. She comes and she anoints Jesus' uh, body with this perfume. Anybody know the story I'm talking about where she breaks open and she anoints Jesus' body? Jesus says something the disciples don't get. He's like, hey, she's preparing me for uh, my death. And the disciples are like, I don't know, that's kind of weird. I don't know what he's talking about. And Jesus just accepts this gift, this very expensive ointment being broken open and poured over him. And it specifically says that Judas, check this out, rebukes Jesus. Like He's like, Jesus, we shouldn't be doing this. And he just forgets that this is Jesus. Uh, Jesus, we shouldn't be doing this. This perfume is very expensive, and we could sell this and give it to the poor, and we could provide money and, and have ministry that happens. This is a waste of kingdom resources. And Jesus is like, hey, hold up. It's worth it. And what she's doing is not going to be taken away from her. And then John gives us insight that the disciples don't have at the moment. And it simply says this, that Judas's motive was not because he cared for the poor, but because he was the one who was the treasurer of Jesus' disciples' money, and he saw an opportunity for him to take more money from the purse. So Judas has been skimming from the top all along. Like he's pursuing Jesus, he, he has affection for Jesus, he's following Jesus, but there is this love that he has for money that is really greater than his love for the Messiah. And so what happens is, and Mark, it tells us that he goes to the chief priest. So check this out. Judas is not a helpless victim here. A lot of times we read the story of Judas and we say, oh, it says Satan entered him and Judas was this mark from eternity that he had no choice in the matter and, and he had to go do this and he just poor Judas. No, no, no. Judas sought out the chief priest. Judas willfully chose by his own volition to go to them. And then Matthew, it says, he asked them this question, how much money will give, you give me if I turn Jesus over to you? So what is the point? Judas loves money more than the Messiah. And therefore, he betrays him. So here's a reality check for you in the room. Listen, look at me just for a moment. Hear me say this. Whatever you love more than Jesus will be eventually what you sell Jesus out to obtain. For Judas, it was money. What is it for you? 
Whatever you love, if it's comfort, if it's convenience, if it's, if it's stability, if it's a relationship, whatever it might be, whatever you love more than Jesus will eventually be the thing that you will sell Jesus out to obtain. And Jesus knows this. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Like if you're going to build a ministry, you want rich young rulers to be a part of your team, right? So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. And everyone knows, hey, this guy's name in the Bible is the rich young ruler. You want that dude on your team, right? You can laugh at that, all right? You want that guy. What does Jesus say? Hey, you're lacking something. Go sell all your possessions to the poor and then come follow me. And then it says he drops his head and in sorrow he walks away from Jesus. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus chased him down afterwards and said, maybe that was too harsh. Jesus doesn't go, I was metaphorically speaking, I don't really mean give all your stuff away. I just mean you ought to have the idea of giving it away, but not really do it. So come and let me give you a second shot. No, Jesus doesn't do this. This man is sorrowful, leaves and and walks away from Jesus. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, man, it is hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, for those of us who are poor in the room, you're like, oh, that's, I'm off the hook. Now, let me rephrase what Jesus says, because this is the intention, right? Here's the end. What Jesus says, it's hard for people who love the things of the world to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he knows that if, we're, if he's not the great love of our life, if we're not fully submitting all that we are, all that we have to him, we will never follow him to the end. Eventually, we will sell him out to obtain the thing that we love most. And this is a serious issue. This is a, ma- a massive issue. This is an issue of loyalty. For instance, let me just illustrate it like this. Like our family just moved into a house. We love our house. My, our plan is we want to raise our kids in this home. I want to retire in this house. I, I want them to, I told Adrian that whenever we move out of the house we're in, you won't need to call U-Haul. Just call Raider Funeral Home. That'll be the last move that I have, right? That's my hope. I love our house. I don't plan on going anywhere But here's the reality. If you walk up to me today and there's a check with enough zeros on it, that house is yours, baby. I promise you. Because there is a price tag on it. Like, I love our house, but I have, it's really more of a strong affection because I promise you, you offer me a sum of money, it is yours. You can have it today. I'll be out tomorrow if there's enough numbers on the check. You come to me and you ask that same question and you offer that same check for one of my children, I'm going to tell you you're crazy. Because it wouldn't matter how many numbers were on the check or how many zeros you added to the end, there's no price tag. Why? Because there's a love that I have for them that, that is greater. There's nothing you could offer me in this world that would say they're worth that. My kids are, that, that, that's worth more than my children. No, no, no. My kids are invaluable to me. And what you find with Judas is that Judas sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And this is a big deal. We can't miss this. Look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, verses 20 and 21, how serious this is. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. In other words, it's, it's one of you at the table. For the Son of Man goes as, as it is written of him. In other words, he's talking about the cross. What's about to happen to me with the cross is something the prophets told you was going to happen. But listen to what he says next. This is important. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now listen to this next phrase. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. This is a serious deal. Jesus is saying this is, this is an eternal decision. Your eternity is on the line. 
Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a saving faith relationship with Jesus. And this is a serious deal. Jesus says it would be better to not have ever been born than to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel and say no to Jesus and experience an eternity apart from him. He says it'd be better not to be born than to go to hell for eternity. This is a serious issue. This is why just a few weeks earlier, Jesus talking with his disciples along the road, he says to them, listen, 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 what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and then forfeit his soul? And then he asked this rhetorical question, what would a person give in exchange for their soul? Let me just kind of interpret that for you. What would it it profit a man to gain everything you ever wanted in life, everything that you think would make you successful and happy to obtain the nicest house, nicest car, best relationships, greatest friends, greatest success, all the applause of man. What would it profit of you to gain all of those things and yet in the end forfeit the only thing that has eternal value and significance? What would you give in exchange for your soul? Some of you right now in this room, you are the Judas. There are things that you love more than Jesus. Therefore, you live in proximity, but you've never been saved by Jesus. What is it that you're chasing that's worth your soul? Listen, for Judas, Judas' eternity was worth 30 pieces of silver. And at the end of the day, you know what? He didn't want the 30 pieces of silver. He ended up throwing that away before he hanged himself. For, for Judas, his, etern- his eternity was worth 30 pieces of silver. What is your eternity worth? People say all the time, I, I want to follow Jesus. I just don't know if I'm ready to follow Jesus because I have to walk away from relationships. I know gonna, that Jesus is going to demand areas of my life to be fully submitted to him, and I just don't know if I'm ready for that. Okay, that's fine, and I appreciate the honesty, but that is the price of your soul. For some of you in the room this morning, this is the character that, most identify, that you most identify with. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you not to move on beyond this character as I move to character number two. You just marinate in that. Here's character number two. You ready for this one? Everybody say yes. All right, so verse 26, we see the next character of the story emerge. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, this now he's with the twelve, Judas had already gone away. He says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And then Peter said to him, I love this. We're going to talk about Peter for a moment. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night before the chicken. I just want to see if you're awake. Crows twice, you will deny me three times. I love this, Peter. (laughs) But he said emphatically, he's arguing with Jesus, never a good idea. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So, okay, we're talking about our man Peter, right? Now, I can identify with Peter. Peter is is the guy who is kind of this this bold. He's he's ready to fight at every single moment. He's a very intense, you know, passionate, kind of brash type of a guy. I I love Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters in the the Bible. He's a bold fighter. Like there's people who are fight and flight. We're going to see that Peter's a little bit of both. In a few moments, we're going to see, or not today, but in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll see Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane cutting soldiers' ears off. That's the kind of guy Peter is. And then a couple of hours later, he's going to be running from a schoolgirl, right? I mean, so this is a guy who's very conflicted emotionally. So here's what we've got with Peter. Now, listen, here's the second thought I want to show you with Peter. Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to, you're going to, 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 to deny me. Peter, Peter's arguing. 
And here's what we learn from Peter. In Peter, we see the insufficiency of self-sufficiency. We see the insufficiency of self-sufficiency. Don't you listen to the dialogue. Listen to the, the dilemma that they're in. Jesus says, hey, tonight somebody's going to betray me. And then he says, you're all going to deny me. And then Peter jumps up and says, not me. I'm not going to deny you. And then I love this. This is a, really an embarrassing moment for Peter. Peter turns on his boys. He turns and looks at all them and says, those cats, they might abandon you, but I'm not going to. Like, could you imagine being the other, you know, 10 at the time? Like, what are you talking about, Peter? I'm not going to deny it. And Peter's like, no, these guys, these bums, these guys aren't doing it. I'm going to do it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. And I, I can imagine in the scene, Jesus gets near to Peter and just looks at him and points his finger to his chest and says, no, no, Peter, you understand. I'm specifically talking about you. Like, you're, you're the main one that I'm talking about. In fact, Peter, before breakfast, you're going to deny me three times. You, you, you don't have what it takes. And then Peter again, argues emphatically with Jesus. Not me. I'm in. They got to put a sword through my heart. I'm going down with you. If you die, I die. I'm in. And then Jesus says, no, Peter, it's going to be you. And we know the story. What happens in the story? Peter, Peter doesn't make it till morning. And then in front of a schoolgirl, he, he denies Jesus, cursing, says, I don't even know the man And this is what we find in Peter. Peter is so self-confident. Peter is so assured of himself. Peter is over and over again talking about, I am not going to. They might, but I'm not. I'll die. I'm following. I'm not going anywhere. I, I, I. Peter's problem is, is that he has a lot of confidence in I and very low need for I am. His self-sufficiency is going to end with it being insufficient. Peter's going to fall miserably. How many of you in the room could identify with that? It's over and over again. God, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to think that again. I'm not going to look at that again. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to go there again. I can handle this. I'm in a season of life where I've got things under control. Man, I've got my life in check. I can manage the relationship. I can manage the temptation. I've got this. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. Only to fail time and time and time and time again. You know know why? Your self-sufficiency will always be insufficient to follow Jesus. You see, here's the problem. We've got to guard ourselves from, from allowing the gospel to be that thing we embrace that allows us to be forgiven for our sin and not the thing that we live in daily that frees us from our sin. You see, so far too many people think the gospel is, I receive the gospel and I'm saved from my sin, but then when it comes to sanctification, I've got this, and we try to white-knuckle ourselves to holiness only to fail miserably. Listen, the gospel is not that thing that just saves you from your sin. But the gospel is the power of God through the Spirit at work in your life that delivers you from the power of sin. If you could do it on your own, you wouldn't need the gospel. And yet here, here, here we go. We, we, we do this over and over and over again. I've got this. I can do this. Listen, let me just tell you about I. I'm a failure. I'm weak. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the courage. I don't have the strength. I I, I don't have the guts. I I don't have the the focus. I don't have the spiritual maturity. I don't have. But guess what? I know that I am does. 
And I am will never fail me. I am will give me more than enough strength. I am will give me all the courage I need. I am will infuse me with holiness. I am will empower me with the Spirit. I am will give me everything I need to walk in glad submission to Jesus. Because what I am insufficient to do, He is fully sufficient to do. And so rather than living like Peter in our own strength, what we need to do is die to ourselves. Peter, Peter is told by Jesus, Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to get into this in a couple of weeks. I don't want to kind of pre-preach this, but I'm going to a little bit. Peter is in the Garden, and Jesus pulls him aside and says, hey, listen, I mean, the enemy's after you. Pray so you don't fall into temptation. I got this, Jesus. I'm going to go take a nap. Listen, so many of us are living our life in this room right now with this, I got this Jesus mentality. And listen, you can only white knuckle so long. There's a reason that, that bull, bull riders only have eight seconds. Because eventually the bull wins. Right? Our, our self-sufficiency is insufficient. And it'll prove it to be true time and time and time again. But there's a great news. There's a third character we're going to look at, and he is the hero of the story. His name is what? Oh, good. I'm glad you didn't say Judas. All right. <laughs> Let's get back to the meal, this last supper, and focus on the most important character. Verse 22, right in the middle of these two stories, these two men, these two characters. Verse 22. And as they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread... And after blessing it, and he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to give you the backdrop of this, of this part of the story. As I said earlier, they're in the upper room, and what they're experiencing in this moment is what's called the Passover meal. The Passover meal was the most important meal of the day for the Jews. I'm sorry, most important meal of the year for the Jews. That this is a celebration that was annual. It was a, a commemorating and celebrating God's deliverance from the slavery of Egypt um, 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 through Moses. And so what the story is, is that God's people were in slavery and bondage 400 uh, plus years and uh, wanting to be delivered. And so God sends Moses, who's going to be the deliverer. He goes in and God performs uh, a number of plagues through uh, Moses to get Pharaoh's attention. The Pharaoh is hard-hearted. He's not going to turn the people over. So there's a, there's a tenth and final plague. And this is where the death angel is going to come in and he's going to go to every home in Egypt, including the Jewish people. But he, God tells his people, here's what I want you to do. There's a substitute for you. I want you to slaughter a, a, an, an animal, a lamb, a perfect lamb. And I want you to put the blood over the doorpost of the home. And when the death angel comes, when he sees the blood over the home, he will pass over because that animal will be considered a substitute for you. And he will pass over, but every home who does not have the blood of the lamb over the house, the firstborn of that family, even the animals, will die and perish. And that night there were hundreds and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who died that evening. Pharaoh gets up and he sees the death toll and he says, get your people out of there. And so this Passover meal is commemorating and celebrating the night when God's wrath passed over because the blood of the lamb had been shed for them. Now you know where this is going. 
So what Jesus does right before the cross in God's divine sovereign plan, right before he goes to the cross, by the way, Passover weekend, Jesus goes to this traditional meal where there was much ceremony and tradition. There was a formula where everything represented something and you always followed the tradition, but Jesus changes the tradition. You know what he does? He says, hey, listen, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This ceremony, this tradition that you've been following for these thousands of years, they've been pointing to something greater, and that something greater is here. There is a greater deliverer than Moses, and it's me. There's a greater Passover, and it's the Passover of God's wrath of all time, and it's going to be passing over you if you will allow me, who will be the sacrificial lamb, to be what covers you, and let me be a substitute for you. And so Jesus takes the meal, and he takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he takes the cup, and he passes it, and he says, my body's going to be broken, my blood is going to be shed, and there's a new covenant that it's going to make with you, and this covenant is not going to be dependent upon your ability to follow me and do the things that I've called you to do, but rather it's going to be built upon the reality that I did for you what you could not do for yourself. Ultimately, I died in your place. And so this covenant is going to be an everlasting covenant on the basis of my blood and my body. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we're going to do it in a couple of weeks. Now we're commemorating and we're celebrating the greater Passover. What Christ has done for us. Now, Here's the, here's the part of the story that we often miss that this week just landed on me. And I think it, in this character of Jesus, it, it meets us where we are. Do you, it hit me this week that Jesus is having this moment where he's explaining the cross. And when he, he breaks the bread, he knows his body is going to be broken. When he passes the cup, he knows his blood is going to be shed. And both Peter and Judas are at the table. He already said he knows what Judas is going to do. He knows the sin Judas is going to commit. He knows the failure and the denial Jesus, Judas, Peter is going to commit. He knows the sin of both of these men, and yet he sits down and he breaks the bread and he passes the cup, and he says, boys, I'm doing this for you. My body will be broken for you, Judas. I know where you are. I know what you're going to do. I know what's in your heart. And yet, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to be broken. My blood's going to be spilled. Peter and the rest of the disciples, you're going to deny me. Peter, you're going to adamantly deny me. And yet, I'm going, and my body's going to be broken, and my blood is going to be shed. They are at the table. And Jesus knows exactly what they're going to do. And yet he says, I'm going anyway. Then it hit me this week. We look at that story and we think, gosh, man, how great is God's grace? How amazing is his grace that, here's what we'll say, that despite their sin, despite the betrayal, despite the denial, despite that Jesus still goes to the cross and he's still going to go and die, and despite those things, he's going to go. And listen, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Jesus doesn't just look at them and go, I'll overlook the sin and go to the cross anyway because I love you. Here's what he does. I'm going to the cross because of your sin, not despite your sin. And here's the lesson we learn from Jesus. You know what we learn from Jesus? This is the truth we get from him. We learn that unconditional love is available to undeserving people. 
Unconditional love is available to undeserving people. Even at this moment, it's almost like Jesus is saying, Judas, you don't have to do this. You don't have to go here. You don't have to go there. I'm going to make provision for you. Peter, I'm going to make provision for you. I'm going to go and I'm going to die, not despite your failure and your sin, but because of your failure and your sin. I know where you are. I know what's in your heart. I know what you're going to do. And I'm going because of that, my body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed. Listen to me in the room. Jesus knows every dark secret about your life. He knows the things in the shadows. He knows the things in the corner. He knows the things that you've stuff deep down inside. He knows those parts of your life. You don't want anyone in. And listen, and he loves you still, not despite your sin, but because of your sin and not despite your sin that he went to a cross, but because of your sin, he went to the cross. And you're like, man, I don't, I don't deserve this love exactly, but it's available. Unconditional love for undeserving people made available. I wonder if, if I, I guess again, this is, this is Todd's words, not God's word. But I wonder if in that moment, Jesus isn't maybe looking at Judas going, Judas, you have no idea what I'm about to do for you. Peter, grace is sufficient. I know where you are. And I love you anyway. Some of you in the room this morning need to hear those words. Unconditional love. Undeserving people. That's the gospel. Jesus knows where you are. He knows your failures, your past, your present. He knows the true condition of your heart, whether you're a Judas who's living in proximity. You've never experienced a saving relationship with Jesus. He knows if you're Peter, if you're just living a life of constant self-sufficiency where you fail time and time again. He, he knows that. And his body was broken, his blood was shed to deliver you, forgive you, and restore you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. So Father, we love you. I, I pray now in the name of Jesus, you will stir our hearts to this reality. Unconditional love to undeserving people. We don't have to run and hide in the shadows. We can come and know you if we need to be saved. And we can come and gain strength from you if we need your power. And we thank you that the cross has made provision for both of those things for us. And we lay this at your feet in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's worship.